Uh, we're having some technical difficulties, and so if, uh, if you're hearing from friends online, they're saying, where are you? Where are the service? Uh, Lakeland is down internet-wise, and so we've been watching it all morning, and so, uh, so you, you got the best seat of the day. Uh, you're here live, and I think we're going to try to rebroadcast that. I think we're still recording, I believe, and trying to get that out sometime later today uh, for those who will miss it this morning. Well, Habakkuk 1 is where we're headed today. We're going back to the book of Habakkuk. We launched our new teaching series last week entitled, When God Doesn't. And really kind of allowing us to fill in that statement ourselves, because for some of us in here, we may would say, when God doesn't show up, or when God doesn't care about me, or when God doesn't answer my prayer. There's a lot of things that we might personalize that with, and we would kind of fill in the blank, and we kind of struggle through those thoughts personally. But when we began last week looking at Habakkuk, we saw this was a prophet of God, a messenger of the voice of God to proclaim truth and really is in a position where he is in great heartache. See, he's in the southern part of the kingdom, Judah, and he sees all around him God's chosen people are a mess. There's idolatry taking place. There's injustice He says in the first four verses, the law has been paralyzed, talking about how the unrighteous is overcoming the righteous. It's just a really bad, messy situation. And so Habakkuk offers this complaint to God. It's a lament. It's this prayer to God, and he says, how much longer, how long will I cry? He asks God, are you just going to sit idly by and watch this happen? Do you not care that the law is not being obeyed? And so he offers this prayer and lament, and then we look at verse 5 through 11, and we see how God is going to respond. Now, what's interesting about God's response, it's almost kind of one of those situations that many of us have been in before where somebody tries to tell you, and they say, hey, uh, you won't really believe the details if I tell you. And you're like, no, 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 I I, want to know. Please, just, just tell me. And then they begin to tell us the answer, and then we're like, whoa, yeah, no, 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 I didn't, I didn't see that coming. I did not see it working out like that. Well, that's where Habakkuk is with, with, the, with the Lord, with God. Because after he offers this, this lament or this prayer, this complaint, verse number five, God answers. Now, in reading through the book of Habakkuk, unless your Bible breaks it up with headers for you, you get a little lost in the verbiage. Because there's different transitions of the speaker. So verse 1 through 4, we see Habakkuk with this problem, this complaint, or this oracle, this burden. And then in verse number 5, the transition of voices now is to God himself. And so look in Habakkuk 1, verse number 5. Here's God speaking. He says, Behold you among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously. For I will not work a work in your days, which you will not believe would be told you. He says, buckle up, Habakkuk, because what I'm about to tell you of my answer and my plan, uh, you're going to have a very hard time believing this. Verse number six, for lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses are also swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. 
Their horsemen shall spread themselves, and the horsemen shall come from afar. They shall fly as the eagle that hastes to eat, kind of swooping in, devouring whatever they see. Verse 9, they shall come all for violence. Their their faces shall sup up as the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. They shall scoff at, at the kings, and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this, his power unto his God. Interesting thoughts here. We're going to see that this is completely different from what Habakkuk expected. He offers his complaint and almost backs up kind of waiting for a little bit of reproof for some correction, almost to where he's expecting God to say, okay, yes, I'm not idle. Yes, I'm not going to make you cry much longer. I'm going to step in. We're going to kind of shake around some people. We're going to fix this and work with my covenant people. That's the expectation. But God says, I've got a plan, and it's a part of of my sovereign plan, and this is what's going to happen, and you're not even going to believe it, even though I tell you. So this morning, we're going to look at this this section of verses and see, uh, let go of your expectations. Let go of your expectations. Let's pray together. Father, we... We pause here to express our full dependency on you for your word today. I would ask that the message that is communicated and delivered be from above. We do not want to get bogged down with anything that is not from you. I count it an honor and privilege to communicate to your church and to your people. I count it a high call and a high cost to dig in and to dissect properly this word. Help me not to bring to light anything that is not a part of the true text Help us not to try to connect dots that are not there. But as we study this, would you give us your uh, wisdom, your leading, and your discernment? We would pray that as your church today, we would be better. We would take steps of growth because of studying your word together. Whatever you accomplish through the work of your spirit, we give you honor and glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. The thought of expectations is a little bit of a tricky one because when you think about expectations, you know that there are, there are positive expectations. There are good expectations that we all have in life that we can't let go. Think about that in your workplace. When you show up to work tomorrow, you have expectations of what you need to do, what you need to accomplish, and how you behave in your workplace. Uh, for many of you going back to school this last week, you had expectations in the classroom what you needed to accomplish, and how you were to go about it. Many of you have experienced expectations in a marriage covenant. Uh, With that marriage vow that you have made, you have expectations of, of being solely concentrated on that spouse to be faithful and true and to remain pure. So that is an expectation. We have expectations in our homes, with our families, with our kids, with each other in relationships. So these are, these are good, common, and expensive. And, and good expectations. There's the expectations of God's church. He gives us our mission, our goal, our commission, and sends us out to be that salt and light. And so those expectations we live by. There's expectations to be a part of a local church with membership and your commitment level. There's also expectations of the Christian life and the spiritual journey. So you get it. You understand there are a lot of good, justifiable expectations that we shouldn't and cannot let go of. 
But then on the other side of it, there are a lot of these negative or bad expectations. Think about those for a moment. There's this misplaced or illogical expectations that we have. Maybe an expectation in the wrong direction or the wrong thing, the wrong someone, and that is a misplaced illogical expectation. There's also the misguided or foolish expectations. And we struggle with a lot of those because in our selfishness and pride, we kind of set ourselves up with a lot of foolish expectations on a given basis. And when those are not met, well, then it really frustrates us, even potentially angers us when those are not met. The other side of that negative is like improper or just set wrong expectations. And what happens with these expectations is we have them, we hold them, and what it means is that we have this belief, this solid belief about something or that something is, or maybe there's even this how it should be or at least how it is. So we have all of these thoughts about something, and therefore when it's not met, well then it it really hurts us, crushes us. Some of you have experienced that this past week in your workplace, at school, in your marriage, maybe with your family, in society, in public, uh, with government, with your country. There's a lot of missed expectations. By the way, if you're hoping that the White House is going to give you a sense of success and peace and enjoyment in life, that's an improper, illogical uh, expectation. It's just not going to happen, right? And, and so these are really important things because what ends up happening with our expectations is it can really drag us down when they're not met. Now, some great expectations that we're reminded about in God's word comes from the author of Proverbs. In Proverbs 23, he says, let not thine heart envy sinners. And by the way, hold on to that thought because that's going to come up in a little bit with Habakkuk because his expectation was he was just so frustrated by his own people with the injustice, the paralyzing of the law. There was just so much junk going on around him that he just had this, this, this bitter spirit towards these sinners. Or then he began to, to uh, be bogged down with these expectations. Then the proverb says, but be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long. Verse 18 For surely there is an end, that's the word hereafter, surely there is a hereafter, there is an end, and thine expectation shall not be cut off. So as Christians, we sang about the living hope today. We talked about how God is mighty to save. And so with our salvation, because of the blood of Jesus Christ and the salvation by which we experience that deliverance, Well, now we know that there's an expected end, and our hope will not be cut off. So I'm thankful that we don't find our security, our safety, or our sense of success in this temporal life that we live here on earth. The psalmist would even put it this way, Psalm 62, and he said, truly, my soul waits upon God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. That's verse 1 and 2. Then he jumps down verse 5 and he says, My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. 
He is my defense, I shall not be moved. And God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. You say, why? why is he so repetitive? Why is he saying one thing after another that's just repeating a line from, from what he wrote before? The psalmist is wanting to reiterate and get through our heads that the expectation comes from God, only God. So when our expectations come from him, his sovereign will, sovereign way, he only is our rock, our solid rock that we sang about here at the beginning of our worship time together. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So if I'm trying to maneuver through life with everything else other than my solid foundation, him as my rock and my salvation, well, my expectation is misguided. So why would he reiterate this over and over again about him being our rock, our salvation, our defense, not being moved, his gl- my glory, my refuge? In the Hebrew writing, they were not able to use bold print or underlining any words. So it's not that he could say, like I did in my notes, I've got the word only, uh, bold and underlined. So I know to emphasize that while I'm communicating God's message. The Hebrew writers would not have been able to have that tactic. And so what they did in Hebrew literacy is that they would just keep reiterating. They would keep repeating statements so that that would bring emphasis to it. So the psalmist is helping us to see that our expectation comes in him, God, as our hope, our salvation, our rock, our defense, and our glory. So how will Habakkuk respond to this lost, I guess you would say missed expectation? Because in verses 1 through 4, he's poured his heart out. And last week when we walked away, we were kind of, we were motivated to be raw and authentic with God. Remember, we said we don't have to, we don't have to edit the things we say to God from our mind to our voice because he already knows what we're thinking. So there's no editing system here with God that says maybe I can trick God thinking with spiritual words that I'm more in tuned than I really am at this moment. So that's why with just raw, authentic, unedited verbiage, we just talk to God. And we can complain, we can cast our burden, but we have to be willing to hear him. So when Habakkuk hears, well, this is what God answers. In verses 5 through 11, God responds to Habakkuk, and it had to have been shocking to Habakkuk. In verse number 5, he says, to look, behold, to see, to wonder, And to believe it or not, this is a moment that Habakkuk is going to be taken back. Because come to find out, God was not idle. God was at work. God was continuing to be definitely at work. And this was not making sense to Habakkuk. What a great truth to see that God is is always at work in our lives even when we don't see it. You know, sometimes in our life, We want to see the clear evidence, and that motivates us to continue to remain faithful. So we find it very difficult, hard to be motivated to keep praying for the same thing, unless we see a little piece of evidence. I actually have gotten to the place with Natalie, and we're praying over some some very serious things right now with our future and our home and our our family. And and, and so with those things, uh, we've begun to pray, God, would you be working in front of us, before us, behind us, around us? Would you be working in every way that we can't even make sense of, that we don't see right now and may not ever see in the near future? Would you just be working in such a way that with great confidence we find that our expectations don't have to be met 
just knowing that you're sovereign and always working. So here, ourselves, we have to look, see, wonder, and believe it or not. Hard to believe that God is working in spite of the evidence. Hard to trust that God is accomplishing his will of what he deems best for us. It's hard to come to this place. But Habakkuk had to be willing. If he was going to throw out his burden and his complaint to God, what does that look like for you? Your complaint, your burden, you got it in your mind? You're willing, you're ready. You want to take it to God. You want to throw it, leave it. Be raw and authentic with it. But then we have to be willing to hear from God. And that's where he says, buckle up. Because while you thought I was idle, while you thought you had to keep crying and I wasn't hearing, while you thought I didn't care that the law was paralyzed or that the unrighteous was overcoming the righteous, I've always been at work. And here's what verse 6 tells us. Verse 6 tells us that God was allowing and preparing and directing the Chaldeans to come in to take the covenant people of Israel into exile. Now, when Habakkuk hears this, there is great shock. It's like that emoji on your phone where it goes like this. All right, you know which one that is, okay? It's got the eyes wide open, mouth gaping, and it's like, what is going on? Habakkuk's response is exactly that. And here's why he's responding in that way. 20, 25 years before this moment, the Chaldeans were, were nothing. I mean, they were not a power force by any means. There was the Egyptians and there were the Assyrians. The Assyrians had come into the northern kingdom of Israel and overtaken them, taken them into exile. They were a power horse. Then there was Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and they were a power horse. And so these guys are ruling the whole region. Assyria was a major force in warfare and ruling of that area. But then in the last 20 years, God's been allowing and providentially preparing the Chaldeans to become a mighty force. The Chaldeans were going to leave the east and they were going to travel up to the northern kingdom where Assyria was. And Assyria got word and sent a messenger down to Egypt to Pharaoh to say, bring some army up to Assyria so that we can fight against the up and coming Chaldeans. So when the Pharaoh sends his mighty army up through the kingdom of Israel, uh, King Josiah, you remember him, the last good king of the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, he comes with his army to stop the Egyptian force coming up. But you know, remembering from the study of the text, that was when King Josiah was wounded in the war and he died because of those wounds. So the Pharaoh and the Egyptians continue to move their army north to where the Assyrians are. And by allies, Assyria and the Egyptians are ready to fight against the Chaldeans. If you would have been alive during that time, you would have said, this is a no-brainer. This is going to be bad for the Chaldeans. But again, God in his providence has prepared the Chaldeans, a godless, wicked people, to overcome Assyria and Egypt in order that they would come into the southern kingdom and take over Judah. So when Habakkuk hears, not only that he's going to bring a wicked nation in to take against the God covenant people, but then it's the Chaldeans? This is such a weird situation. Remember, Habakkuk wasn't just looking at wanting to live in ease and pleasure in his land. It wasn't that he was trying to live the the Judean dream It wasn't that he was just hoping that everything would be fine and dandy. No, 
he understood, Habakkuk understood the covenant that God had made with Abraham for his seed to be the seed that would bring a future redeemer. He knew of the covenant made with Moses at, at Mount Sinai and that, that covenant that was made for them to obey the law. And if they didn't, there would, be, there would be curse that would come. If they did, there would be blessings that would come. And so here Habakkuk is like every other Old Testament prophet. He's basing his information, his understanding, and his knowledge on those covenants that God had made with his people. Now, Deuteronomy 28 is where you would find a long chapter of the law that God had issued, the blessings that will come to Israel when they obey and the curses that will come when they disobey. Now, this is Old Testament covenant. This is a, a promise. This was a law given to the Israelites. And this is not something for us to grab a hold of today that says, okay, if I disobey God today, I've got to watch out for that judgment coming at any moment. But if I obey God today, he's going to pat me on the back with that stamp of approval so I can move on to the next step of obedience. So much has changed. The new covenant has come into place. But here, the Israelites are in such dire need of change. So much has happened, and, and Judah had forgotten God. Now, that, that's a familiar thought. You know, Israel is struggling with just remembering who God is, that they had been called out as a people to be a blessing to other nations, Genesis 12, that they were called to be the seed of the Redeemer, Genesis 12. That this was going to be the people that God would use to bring redemption to mankind. And they have forgotten God. And you know what forgetting God entails? Pride and arrogance. And we look at, we look at Israel and like, how in the world could you get to that place? You're God's chosen people. Look at your history books and see about what your great, 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 great grandfathers did. It was amazing. Look at how God has done one thing after another. But no. So often, we find ourselves caught up in the arrogance and pride of our own heart and quickly forgetting God. You see, we look at our own, our own health or our wealth, or we look at our family and relationships. We look at our job or success. We look at all of these things that are tangible pieces of evidence that we find security and safety in, and we soon forget God and say, why do I need God right now? Everything's fine. Everything's great. I don't need God. Now, Christian, I totally get it. You wouldn't dare ever say those words out loud. But your life with your actions and attitudes sometimes communicate that. So that's an area where we have to be careful. We may not uh, uh, see that clearly, but other people around us can help us. Or maybe even just a quiet moment where we reflect and ask God, to help us in that way. The final covenant curse in Deuteronomy 28 was that he said, it's going to be exile for the people. If this doesn't get a hold of their attention, if this doesn't get a hold of their attention, then ultimately, I'm going to take you into exile. Now, this entailed God handling his people over to some foreign nation. It was going to allow them to capture the Israelites and take them into captivity. So God is raising up the wicked Chaldeans here in verses 5 through 11. He is predicting to Habakkuk and saying, it's not going to be long. The Chaldeans are marching this way, and they soon will be knocking on the door of Jerusalem. And it will not be pretty. 
verse 7 through 11, God describes this army. But it's really important for us to see in verse number 6. He says, for lo, I raise up the Chaldeans. This did not catch God off guard. This was not going to take place, and God's like, whoa, 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 this, this, is, my, this is my covenant people. This is, um, this is not supposed to happen this way. No. God, for the last 20, 25 years, had been allowing and preparing for the army of the Chaldeans to overcome Egypt, the Assyrians, and now to move in and take over Judah. Look at some of the verbiage that is used here. Verse number 6 to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. In verse number 9, it says, and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. A couple of those words, don't they kind of bring you back to something? Well, let's just start with sand. You remember when God met with Abraham and he said, and he took him out and he showed him the, the stars of the sky. And he said, your seed will produce and bring a nation of people greater than the stars you can see in the sky and greater than what? The sand that you can count on the ground. Then remember the the years of conquest. Remember the passages of scripture in Joshua where they were going in and, and the people of Israel were going to take captive or they were going to take the land, the promised land that was given to them. And the Bible tells us that they were going to be given dwelling places that were not their own. They were going to be given wells that they had not dug. They were going to be given crops that they had not been planted, that they had not planted. They were going to give land that they had not worked. But this was a part of God's promise to them. And now Habakkuk is hearing from God that the uh, Chaldeans are going to come and take dwelling places that are not their own, gather the people in exile of numbering the sand. And so God is the one who allowed this to happen. If God had not allowed it, they never would have conquered Judah. They could not have done this. And so this shows us the sovereign rule of God, which brings us great comfort. So Christian, remember, the heart of the king is in his hand. Remember that nothing will catch God off guard. Remember, we will be good stewards of citizens of America and cast our vote in November, but the outcome is not for us to fret and worry about because the reality is is this is a temporary dwelling place for all of us. For eternity holds our, our final destination. And this moment here on earth after becoming a Christian is for us to live to the glory of God and be gospel-centered to share the love of Jesus with those that we encounter. So do we get a little unraveled about things when they don't meet our expectations? That's why I said the silly thing at the beginning, if your expectations are in the White House, which I'm pretty confident none of ours are. But the issue there is whatever happens in November will happen or maybe postponed to January. Who knows how it's all going to happen. I just can't worry and fret about that because there are lost and dying people all around us that need to hear the gospel And so at my workplace, your workplace, you don't have to get all hot and intense with people about politics. You don't even have to proclaim why you're voting for what you're voting or or in any way. You can communicate that, but that's not your identity. Like our identity is not in any party or in any policy. Our identity is found in Jesus Christ. Now, as a good steward with my vote, I'm going to vote for that which will do its very best to upheld the biblical principles as close as possible to what we stand for. But I promise you, 
We cannot fret and worry in the days ahead. Yeah, America looks different to many of you today, to all of us today. For many of you, it's not the America you grew up in. uh, And for many of us, it's not what we thought it would be in 2020. But the reality is, is that that can't bog us down. Because we look at God's sovereign rule and sovereign care and know that he is in control. I'm just ready for the Lord to return. I'm looking forward to that day when he comes to rescue, rapture his church. Maybe, hopefully, you are ready. Now, was God forsaking his covenant to Israel by allowing the wicked Chaldeans to come in and take them away? Was he breaking his covenant to Israel? Simple answer, no, he wasn't. Now, if you want to make it more complex of a thought process, here's your answer. No, he wasn't. You see, God had made his promise, and he was going to continue to do everything needed to fulfill that promise. Do you remember our study through, was it uh, Malachi? And when we read Malachi, and we studied it together, and I think we even studied the book of Haggai, and I'm trying to remember which one it was. Uh, You might have to study this out. But there was one time, one of those prophets, again, a messenger of God, bringing uh, the message of exile. They were going to be taken as prisoners, and they were fretting and they were worrying. They were called back to redemption or called back to renewal, this restoration. And they said, well, God doesn't love us anymore. God hasn't uh, fulfilled his promise. And he said that his promise would not break down, that he loved them and would keep his promise as he had said. And so Israelites have been facing that. They've been going over and over and over again. The book of Judges, we studied that, you saw that. They would rebel and God brought punishment. They would cry out for forgiveness and God would restore them and then they would rebel again. So God looks at his chosen people and Habakkuk is looking at a very dark situation. Now, for all of us in here, we see the whole context. We see the whole story. But think about it. If you had started in the book of Genesis, reading through of mankind and Adam falling and sin coming into the world and the perfect plan being disrupted, and then God meeting with Abraham, Genesis 12, to say that there's going to be a redeemer coming from your people, and you're reading, this is getting good, get a little bogged down with Leviticus numbers and Deuteronomy, but you work through it and you get through the laws and you get through the content and the genealogies. And then you get to some of the narratives, Joshua. Oh, that's good stories there. Judges. Oh, this is weird. Like a woman with a stake in her hand who pins a man through his head down to the ground. Great stuff. Really neat narratives. Then you come to the prophets and you're like, whoa, what is happening to God's covenant people? And you see a messy people. And if it's the first time reading through the story, you're like, man, this isn't going to work out well. Habakkuk is there. He knows that God's not going to annihilate his people because he knows the promise. But he does see that there's a big difference with what he expected to be God's discipline and curse to what God is saying he's going to bring. So imagine what this must have looked like to Habakkuk. God will always remain faithful to his promise. And so Deuteronomy 28 tells us that the last of the curses is going to be exile. The wicked people in Judah who thought that they could get away with their evil deeds forever, well, they were soon to be punished. And here's Habakkuk's response. In verse 12, he has the opportunity to respond to God. Now remember, 
This is not Habakkuk saying, hmm, okay, good thought, good thought. Thank you, God. Appreciate that. Let me process it a little bit. No, this is Habakkuk receiving the word of God and being in total shock. So here's how he responds, verse number 12. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? We shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment, and O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and you cannot look on iniquity. Wherefore, lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devours the man that is more righteous than he? And they make men as the fishes of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them. They take up all of them with the angle, and they catch them in their net, and they gather them in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice, and they are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice unto their net, and they burn incense unto their dragnet, because by them their portion is fat, and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? Here's Habakkuk's response. This is the moment that Habakkuk is is getting what he did not want. For us, it would be where you would go to somebody and you'd say, hey, uh, honest opinion, how does this this look on me? Would you just just tell me? No, 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 honestly, just how does this look? And like, well, yeah, it, it doesn't really look good on you. That's not a good color. That's not a good fit. Not sure what happened, but that's, no, that's not good. You're like, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't have asked. Or better yet, there's a time when you would go to somebody and you'd say, hey, I've got this thought and problem. What do you really think about it? Like, no, 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 you don't want my opinion. No, 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 no. What do you really think about this? And then they tell you what they really think about it. And you're like, oof, I wish I hadn't asked. Like that's Habakkuk right now. He's saying, I felt very much, I felt good liberty to express my burden to my complaint, my lament to God. And I expected some reproof and correction. And then I I expected God to come in and say, shake up, Judah. Come on now, get in line. Let's do it. Let's go. We can do better than this. Then he says, God, I know you're from everlasting. and You're my holy one. I'm thankful that we're not going to die but how in the world have you ordained this judgment? How in the world are you wanting to bring wickedness to overtake your people? Rather than rejoicing that God was no longer silent, now God is going to do a mighty work and Habakkuk has to pray another complaint to God. These verses, we see that the prophet knew that because of God's covenant with Israel, his judgment would ultimately be redemptive and not destructive but the process is going to be brutal. The idea that the holy God would use wickedness of the Chaldeans to punish the wickedness of Judah, this was unbearable. It's almost like the cure was worse than the disease. So it's like if you and I go this week to the doctor and the doctor says, yeah, um, so after all the tests, uh, you're positive with COVID-19. You're like, oh man, I did everything I could. I knew it was going to come. All right, that's fine. Well, okay, doc, what are we going to do to cure this? He's like, well, I've been doing some research, and I, I've got a good cure. He says, I got a uh, syringe here, and we're going to put this in, and it's a flesh-eating bacteria that uh, we're, going to, we're going to inject you with. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, that's, not, that's not the cure I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah, but by this cure, 
It will take your mind off of COVID-19, and you're not going to worry about anything. Okay? So, absurd. The cure was worse than the disease. That's what God is orchestrating here. That the cure of the wicked Chaldeans is going to come in and devour the man that is more righteous than they are. So beside this uh, verse number 13, Habakkuk tells God, you are purer than eyes in eyes than to behold evil. You cannot even look on iniquity, this wickedness. So Habakkuk issues his complaint by asking God two questions, verse 13 and 17. Here are his two questions. He says, why would God use a more wicked people to devour the ones who are comparatively more righteous? Why would God use more wicked people to devour the ones who are comparatively more righteous? Couldn't God have answered his prayer in a different way? Sure. God could have answered his prayer in a different way. Do you think God answered his prayer with the expectation that Habakkuk had? I don't think so. You see, sometimes we struggle there too. And remember, that's where we have to let go of our expectations. You see, and also in verse number 17, here's the other question he says, well, will this injustice continue to go unpunished? Like, is this just going to keep going? Like, is Judah gone forever? Is your your covenant people going to be wiped out? Like, are they just going to come in and, 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 and he uses this analogy of the fish and he says, uh, they're going to come in and gather all of your people like, in a, like fish in a net. And he said, and then these prosperous people who have everything they want, their they're massive army, the massive rulers of this land, uh, they're going to come in and they're going to burn their nets. They're just going to worship their nets and they're going to worship their nets just as, a, as another God. And remember what happened was is that the Chaldeans worshipped their power and their might as their God. That was their security. That's why when they were eventually conquered by the hand of God, it was so devastating to them. Any nation that worshipped false gods was going to be overcome by God himself. And this was just one of those examples. So he says, shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? Now, Habakkuk understood for the use of God would continually use enemy nations of foreign lands to come in to bring judgment to his people. This can be seen all throughout the Old Testament from the major and minor prophets. We would see this reoccurring. But there was still this moral issue with Habakkuk. Because it wasn't surprising that God was going to bring another country, another nation in to conquer Judah. It was this moral issue. I mean, of all people, it's almost like for some of us in here, uh, we were like, we got our man that we're going to vote for. And it's not necessarily that they, that they may, may not lose, or maybe you, you just voted in the primaries and whoever you voted for, maybe they lost. And it's not necessarily that your guy, your girl lost. It's more the fact that maybe wickedness prevailed. And maybe it's kind of like, what in the world is God doing here? So how could God permit the Babylonians to succeed? The problem has troubled believers in one form or another since the beginning of time. Have you ever struggled with that? Why does God permit the wicked to succeed in this world? Why doesn't he act so that the good rather than the wicked will prosper? 
Turn to Psalm 73 for just a minute. I wanted to read you what the psalmist wrote. And this morning in my test run called the 9 o'clock service, um, I totally missed this. And before I turned to Psalm 73, I explained how David struggled with the enemies of God. And I went on for about four minutes describing David's journey. And I said, and and so he could get to this point of writing these words. And then when I look at Psalm 73, it's a Psalm of Asaph, not David. So um, so we need to to fix that with the nine o'clock crowd. So you get the fixes here in this service. But the Psalm of Asaph says, truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For some of us, we get so riled up because verse 3 could really describe us. For some of you, verse 3 is you watching Fox News tonight. I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Some of you could be described by verse number three when you read the paper in the morning. Does anybody read like the black and white hard copy newspaper? Okay, a few of you do. Good. So the ledger needs to keep going, okay? Um, Then he says in verse number 23, he says, nevertheless, now he he goes on to describe what's going on with the wicked. And then he, he talks about how the positive elements of him. He says, behold, these are the ungodly. Yes, verse 12. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end, verse number 17. So then he can say in verse number 23, nevertheless, I'm continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh, my heart, they fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all of them, those who are far from thee. All of them that go a-whoring from thee or are unfaithful from him. Verse 28, it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. Putting my trust in the Lord God, well, that's certainly going to help me to have a better, more positive response than being envious toward the foolish and riled up when the wicked seem to prosper. Now, Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse number 1, he says, I will stand upon my watchtower and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. So as many of the Old Testament prophets, they looked at themselves as a a watchman. And so much of the verbiage would be that they would stand on their watchtower waiting to hear the words of God so that they could communicate that to the people. So here he says, I've expressed my complaint. I've shared my burden, my confusion, and my doubts. And so now I will go stand upon my watch, my duty, my responsibility, and I will set me upon the watchtower. And so I will watch to see what he, God, will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. Now, because God's answer to Habakkuk was not what he expected, he became disappointed and continued to question God. 
Now, this is important for us as we wander through this journey. Just four parts in this series. But we saw his complaint, God's answer, and Habakkuk's complaint. And now we're going to see next week about how God will answer that. But I want to scoot ahead because in the last section of this, we're going to see verse number three and how Habakkuk worships God and him alone. So his expectations are not being met here, and it brings him to disappointment and continues to question God. But in the same manner, when our expectations for how we think life should go, when those aren't fulfilled, we begin to ask questions. The Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, they also reveal a very powerful story of someone who had some missed out expectations of Jesus Christ. You mean somebody thought that Jesus Christ did not fulfill the expectations that they had? I think, who is this rascal? Well, this rascal is in Matthew chapter 13, and his name is John the Baptizer. You see, he had devoted his life to preparing the way for the coming Messiah. He had gone to the wilderness and ate weird clothes and ate weird food, and he had dedicated, sacrificed everything for the coming Messiah. So now John the baptizer, though devoting his life to be this witness and confirming the mark even of the Holy Spirit coming down on Jesus at this baptism, here he is after all of his life events. He finds himself wasting away in prison wondering if Jesus is indeed the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 11, in his struggle of doubt, John sends his disciples He sends his disciples to find Jesus and ask him, here it is, verse number three, are you he that should come or do we look for another? Wow. Now, John's doubt centered on the fact that Jesus' life and mission seemed to contradict what the Messiah should have been doing for Israel. Remember, the people of Israel wanted to place Jesus on the throne. Like they wanted Jesus to rescue them from the Roman bondage. Like that's why they, they expected so much from Jesus here on earth. And so when he was just a teacher doing great works and teaching these great parables, they had some real problems. And so John wanted to know if Jesus was the expected one. In other words, for John and really most of Israel, the Messiah had certain expectations placed on him, and Jesus was failing to meet those expectations. Now, we all face the same dilemma, just like John the baptizer. You see, when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, do we become disillusioned and angry? And then we decide, I'm not following him this week. Like, it was a bad week. God didn't fulfill my expectations, so I'm taking a week off. Yeah. Then maybe when tragedy hits, do we feel like God has abandoned us? Do we easily give up and fail to trust his plan for us? Jesus' response to John the Baptist is vital for us when we are wrestling with our own unfulfilled expectations of God. Because here's what he said. Jesus said, blessed is he whoever shall not be offended in me. Now, we like to grab that verse alone and we say, okay, go out and share the gospel this week and blessed are those who are not offended in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's go. But in the proper context, he's responding to a 
doubtful John the baptizer. Remember forerunner of Jesus Christ. Remember baby leaping in the womb because he was in the presence of the Messiah. So John is in a moment of doubt because his expectations were very different. I mean, why is he rotting away in prison? He sacrificed in the wilderness for years. Wore itchy clothes and ate weird food because he was preparing the way for the Messiah. He was a humbled man. He looked in the eyes of Jesus coming to the river and said, I, I can't baptize you. I can't even latch your sandals. I, I, I can't do this. And so when he saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove to anoint the Son of Man or Son of God, Jesus, here he is now with circumstances not working out quite like he thought they would. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who not offended by me. You know what that means? When Christ, God, the Lord Yahweh, does not accomplish the expectations like we had, well, blessed are those who are not easily offended by Jesus. You see, we got to let go of our expectations. And what we will find with a surrendered life in the reality of what God declares, Isaiah 55, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So that's why this week we can move forward, letting go of our expectations, trusting that God is sovereign. He will do what he has planned and he will never let down his promise. We'll see Judah finally recover. We'll see God's people and his covenant promise finally bounce back. But there's going to be some rough waters to go through. And Habakkuk is going to encounter that with his prayer for mercy in chapter 3 next week.